Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If this podcast has encouraged you in any way, we'd like to ask you to leave a review for Truth Wars on whichever platform you listen on. Now, here's Olin. Okay, if you have your Bibles, let's open up to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. Yeah, this week and next week will be our last weeks together, and so um, do something a little bit different. I mean, in a sense, what we've been doing all quarter is looking at uh, really Satan's schemes, how Satan lies to us, and trying to get down to the deepest root of our sin so that we can catch it at the earliest part and hopefully stop it before it even really starts and starts to blossom in our life and bring all sorts of poisonous <laughs> symptoms. And so, in one sense, we could break down Satan's lies really into four different major categories that he tells us, okay? Uh, and this would just be maybe a summary way to kind of categorize how Satan comes after people. The first lie is God's not good enough. Okay, and a lot of these we saw in, in different places. Maybe you see it the most clearly in the beginning, temptation with Adam and Eve. God's not good enough. You can't really trust him. He's not going to give you the best stuff in life. And then there's this lie that you're not good enough. You lack something. You're not really uh, made in God's image. You don't really have everything that you need. There's something else that you need. You have to go get it. And then in a sense, it's like life's not good enough. Even the life that God has given you. And for them, it was in paradise. It's still not good enough. There's something you need to covet and lust after, this forbidden fruit. You have to have that if you really want the good life. And then the fourth is, after they've sinned, after we've sinned, it's the gospel's not good enough. It's not going to cover you. It's not adequate. You've got to cover yourself. Go build yourself some type of fig leaf righteousness to make you feel kind of safe and warm and fuzzy, whether it's before God or before the people. It doesn't work. That's the lie. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at Peter, the life of Peter, and really look at one man and see how this... A progression of sin, these different lies showed up in Peter's life. Okay, so we can try to learn how is Satan doing this to me? How can I be aware? How can I try to catch these lies, preach truth, and not let it turn into sin in my life? And so um, let's look at Luke chapter 5. Let's start in verse 4. When he, speaking of Christ, had finished speaking, he said to Simon, who's Simon Peter, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered and said, Master, we've worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. Now, maybe there's a little bit of pride in Peter's response. You know, Master, you're the carpenter, you're the teacher, uh, you're the philosopher. I'm the fisherman, I know what I'm doing, we've been fishing all night. Uh, but maybe not. I mean, let's, let's give Peter the benefit of the doubt. Okay? He, Jesus said, go fish more, and he said, yes, sir. Don't think it's going to do any good. But because you told me to, I'll do it anyway. It's a good picture of obedience, okay, with maybe a good attitude. Verse 6, when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. And so they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. God blesses Peter's life, Peter's partner's life, their business so richly that it almost overwhelms them. You ever had a situation like that in your life? It's almost like, stay your hand, Father. You're so good, I almost can't handle the blessings that you're giving me. So, I haven't had something like that in a while. Maybe you pray for it, okay? But look at Simon Peter's response in verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For amazement had seized him, and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Now, there's something that's good and right here. They're amazed at the miracle. 
seemingly their faith in Jesus is growing, of who He really is. He's more than just a man. He's, there's something really unique about Him. His power, His wisdom, His holiness. Right? I mean, that's it. Peter's like, I'm a sinful man. You're obviously more holy than me. I don't deserve to be in your presence. And yet, for years, when I used to study this passage and even teach this passage, I would teach this as a good example of the fear of the Lord. But the more I studied and tried to meditate, I realized that's not really what it is. And here's the reason why. Look at the last part of verse 10, what Jesus says. Do not fear. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and they followed him. If this was the proper fear of the Lord that the Old and the New Testament both exhort us to, Jesus wouldn't have said, stop it. This was still a sinful type of fear. Why? Because this is the first lie. He was dying. Listen, maybe he understood something about God's holiness, God's power, God's wisdom, God's control, God's sovereignty but he didn't understand enough about God's love and mercy and kindness and goodness. He doubted the goodness, the love, the compassion, the tenderness of Jesus. And so in fear over his sin, he said, get away from me. And Jesus said, you don't have to be afraid. That's the first lie that Satan always throws at us at the deepest root. It's a doubt of God's goodness, God's love, God's mercy. Now, his faith is starting to grow, little and small. Jesus speaks, he trusts, he gets up, he leaves everything, he follows him. So that's the first lie, God's not good enough. The second is a lie, you're not good enough. Now flip over to Matthew chapter 14, which chronologically would come after this, Matthew chapter 14, another famous story that I think most of us are probably uh, familiar with. Matthew chapter 14, and skip down to verse 24. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Now, here again, all the disciples, they're in a boat. It's rough weather. Jesus had left them alone. He had sent them off, but now he comes walking on the sea. They see him from a distance, and they think, People don't walk on water. This must be some kind of ghost. And they're terrified and they scream out in fear. Which just a side note, and we're going to see this. But I was doing this study on the life of Peter years ago. And you know, just at first glance, you start studying the life of Peter. You think, well, what was the biggest sin that Peter struggled with? Probably maybe his pride, his arrogance. Right? We always make these jokes in church about, you know, open mouth, insert foot. Right? Peter's talking too much, putting himself forward. And there's a lot of pride. We're going to look at that. But really the sin that comes out the most in Peter's life is his fear. And again, this has been one of the most helpful insights and lessons for me to learn is that when you see pride in yourself, when you see pride in others, what's underneath that pride is a type of fear and doubt and insecurity. That's the real root. That's the real depth of it. Okay? Now, they're, they're scared. Now look at how this is going to work. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Now, in both of the passages so far, notice what happened. People respond to God with a sinful fear. And then the Lord Jesus Christ speaks to them and says, Do not be afraid. It's almost the exact same phrase in the Greek. Don't be afraid. And then their courage lifts. Then their faith lifts. 
It's the Word of God. I mean, just kind of side note, practical application. Maybe the best thing that we can do is to be regularly meditating on the Word of God to heal our sinful fears, to push them down, and to lift up our faith in Him for the fight that comes every day. All right. Now, Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Again, this is a good picture of obedience. This is a good picture of faith. He's not rash. He doesn't just say, I'm jumping out of the water too. Right? There's a, some patience there. Hey, Lord, if it's you, command me, and then I'll come. He waits. He asks. The Lord's going to give the permission. Verse 29, and he said, Come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. So, when his eyes were focused on Jesus, there's faith, there's confidence, there's obedience, there's power. When his faith, when his focus gets off of Christ, onto the waves, onto the circumstances, onto the wind, he sinks. Because then he feels like, I'm not sufficient for this. And he's not. In and of himself, he's not sufficient enough. And he begins to sink. But he responds well. He cries out in prayer, right? When you're like, I'm already struggling in sin. This is not about cutting sin off of the roots. I'm already in the sin. What should I do? Beg God for mercy. Beg God for help. Beg God for sanctifying power. You never have to stay in your sin and your shame for a second. If you turn to the Savior. Verse 31. Immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You have little faith. Why did you doubt? Now, there's so much that's good in that little last phrase. He didn't say you had no faith. He says, your little faith. Your baby faith. Your miniature faith. You got seed faith, but you need your faith to grow up. Okay? Now, fear, what we've said, if, if you've been listening, if you've been remembering, okay, since day one is, the very deepest root of our sin is doubt. It's doubt. We doubt something about God. We doubt something about ourselves. But here's the thing, guys. Doubt and fear are pretty synonymous. Do you not see that? I mean, here, they were afraid, they were afraid, and Jesus says, why did you doubt? Doubt and fear, you can almost use them interchangeably in this context. He doubted the power of Christ. He doubted the power of Christ in him. That it was working. And it leads to this. Now, at the deepest root of all of our sin, if you trace it down deep enough, there will be doubt or fear. Now, you may hear that and say, I don't know, are you sure? That seems like a stretch. Think about some of the sins of the flesh, more the scant, you know, whether it's gluttony, drunkenness, pornography, use me. Fear, doubt what? Have you not heard the phrase that the younger generation is using, uh, FOMO? Y'all familiar with that? The fear of missing out? That's what leads to so many of the more scandalous sins of the flesh. What if there's some forbidden fruit out there that God and mommy and daddy said is bad, but it sure doesn't look bad. It looks like a lot of fun, and I don't want to miss out. And that fear of missing out is what drives us to rebel and do all sorts of things. There's fear, there's doubt. Now, think about this, okay? Uh, R.T. France has this quote. I love this. He says, Doubt denotes not so much a theological uncertainty or unbelief as a practical hesitation, wavering, being in two minds. Not so much a lack of intellectual conviction as the conflict between the evidence of his senses and the invitation of Jesus. Right? It's not like Peter's theology changed. I believe Jesus is powerful enough. Now I don't. It was more about his experience. 
And isn't that where we live? You wake up in the morning, you have some great time alone with the Lord, maybe driving into work, you're listening to praise music, and you just feel filled with the Holy Spirit. And then you get into conflict with somebody you work with, and you lose your temper, and you scream in anger, and you get mad, and you get bitter. Did your theology change? Not really. But your experience of that theology changed, right? It got shoved way to the back burner. And we've got to work by God's grace to keep it on the front lobe of our mind at all times. That's how you live a holy life. Let me, let me give you this example. Imagine after class somebody came over and asked you, said, hey, let me give you a scenario. I need some parenting advice. And they said, you know, i got a teenage... And listen, this is a hypothetical. Sometimes I use live fire examples. This one is a hypothetical example before you think that I'm the worst parent in the world, okay? I'm just making this one up. Okay, so, you know, hey, I've got a teenage son, and, uh, you know, he snuck out, he stole a car, he got drunk, drunk driving, he had an accident, fled the scene, and then, you know, showed up at my house uh, with a prostitute in the middle of the night. How should you respond to that? Now, listen... All of us could probably give a good answer to that. We'd probably get the major principles right. Well, yeah, that's, that's pretty bad. That's serious. Uh, you obviously, you need to rebuke him. Obviously, there needs to be some consequences, right? But you don't want the consequences to be like vindictive and punitive. You want them to be uh, to rehabilitate him. And, you, and, and listen, you've got to speak hard truth to him, but it's got to be loving. It's got to be gracious. You've got to let him know that he's still your son. You want, right? We could all get the right answer. But if that actually happens to you tonight, how do you think you might respond in the heat of the moment when the cops wake you up at 3 a.m.? How dare you? How could you? I've built such a great name and reputation in this community, and this is the way you... Right? Because stress <laughs> reveals our real functional theology. And not just the theology we say we know up here. It's what we really live out of. Does that make sense? Yeah, but you talked about uh, doubt and fear being the deepest grit. Where does pride work in with that? We're going to get there. Next point. You're just, a, you're just a step ahead of me. Okay, but that's good. I like that. We're coming. Listen to D.A. Carson. This was, this was really helpful for me this week. Jesus' rhetorical question to Peter, right? Why did you doubt? Helps both Peter and the reader, that's us, recognize that doubts and fear quickly disappear before a strict inquiry into their cause. You understand what he's saying? If it, Try it this week. The first time you are tempted to sin, okay, whatever your pet sin is, you're tempted. If you can catch yourself in the moment and think, okay, why, now what is it that I'm doubting about God? What is it I'm fearful of? What am I doubting about myself? What, where's the doubt? And then, why am I doubting? It won't take long to realize, I don't have any good reason to doubt anything about God. He's so good, right? He's so rich in mercy. He's so powerful. He's so wise. I've got to trust Him and obey and not try to go my own way. Makes sense? Okay, so, third point, life's not good enough. And this is where we're going to see the pride really clearly. Thank you for anticipating where we're going. So, back to Luke, Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, this is the night that Jesus will be arrested. And let's skip down to verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, 
And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now just as best as we can, try to put your shoes in Peter's, try to put yourself in Peter's shoes for just a second and think about this. There is a lot that's encouraging here. It's like it's a warning, hey, it's coming. Jesus saying, but I've prayed for you personally. Yes, you're going to fall, you're going to stumble, but you're not going to fail ultimately. You're going to turn. You're going to repent. You're going to be a leader again. You'll get distracted. There's a lot of encouragement here. And yet, let's be honest, it's also fairly terrifying, right? Even if we're like, we're trying not to have fear, so let's not be terrified. Okay, it's incredibly sobering, is it not? Hey, Simon, uh, Satan asked for a personal attempt to go after you. And I said yes. I mean, side note, guys. We only have two examples of this that are clear in the whole Bible, right? Satan asked for permission about Job. Satan asked for permission about Peter. And what was God's answer both times? Go for it. And listen, our assumption should be, well, how was Satan able to tempt Adam and Eve? Because he had to ask God permission. How was Satan able to tempt David and other kings in the Old Testament? He asked permission. It seems like that's the pattern. Satan shows up and says, I'd like permission to tempt so-and-so. And God says, yes. So we should be very sober-minded. I mean, if there was ever a time for some holy trembling and sobriety and humility, it was right here. Now listen, when we're tempted, when the doubt comes in, there's really two different sinful ways that we can respond. There's the way of doubt and fear. We just kind of capitulate. That's what Peter did the first two times, right? He's just overwhelmed in terror. Ah. Right? I mean, what would an example of that be in modern day? Maybe you're, you know... Uh, Doing whatever you do for a hobby. At the hunting club, at the gym, at the pottery barn, I don't know. Whatever your hobby is. And you have this great opportunity to share the gospel with somebody. And you just know the Holy Spirit has put it up on the tee. And you just don't do it. You're just terrified. So you just mumble something and run away. Okay? There are times where we just kind of give in to the lie, to the fear, to the doubt. But if that's not my sinful response, the sinful response is a type of pride. Oh, I'll handle this. Oh, I'll fix this. If I don't like God's plan for my life, I'll just go out and make a better plan. And this is what Peter does this time. Look at verse 33. But he said to him, Lord, with you I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. Now listen, if I come up to you after class today and say, hey, I've got a warning for you. You know, I don't typically do this, but I think I had some kind of charismatic experience and the Lord kind of gave me a warning that you're going to be really tempted, it's going to be hard. You need to... And you want to dismiss me? That's fine, right? You'd be like, I'm a Presbyterian, I don't even believe in that kind of stuff. Fine. But when Jesus Christ is standing in front of you saying, hey, let me just let you in on what's happening behind the scenes in the heavenlies. Satan's coming after you personally tonight. I mean, what ought that to do? to any type of self-confidence we had. It should just instantly crush it, right? Me against the devil? This sounds terrible. Not Peter. He's like, I got this. I'm not worried about that. I'm ready to go to prison with you, Jesus, if you've got to go. I'm ready to die with you. Here's his pride. Here's his cover-up. Here's his fig leaf righteousness. Look how strong I am. Look how put together I am. Okay. Verse 34, he said, I say to you, Peter... The rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three times that you know me. Now, um, skip down to verse 54. But while we're doing that, 
the other Gospels, I think Matthew specifically, maybe it's Mark, points out that it's not just that Peter said, hey, I'm willing to go to prison and die with you. What else did he say in his boast? Does anybody remember when he's trying to convince Jesus of how he's the greatest disciple? He says, even if all these other guys deny you. And isn't that what happens a lot of times in our pride? It's the comparison game. We look to the left and the right and like, you know what? You're right, Jesus. These other 10, 11 guys, a bunch of bozos, they probably will bail out on you. Not me. I'm the A1 and number disciples. I'm the rock. Remember, Jesus, you gave me that nickname. I'm going to prove it tonight. It's pride. We know how this story ends. Look at verse 54. Having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. Now, let, let's give Peter his due, his credit. When the army of soldiers came to first arrest Jesus, Peter did respond in strength. He tried to cut a guy's head off. But when Jesus says, put your sword away, then the fear kind of came in and he ran away. But now he's coming back. He's trying to follow. He's following at a distance, right? I mean, can't you see yourself in this? One second I'm scared, then I'm trying to kind of get the courage, and he's kind of going, trying to go back. Following at a distance, I mean, it, this is like a practical example of Romans 7. The good I want to do, I don't do. The very thing I hate is what I do. He, he, he's back and forth. He's wavering. He's trying. He's fighting. Verse 55, after they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. And a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him, said, This man was with him too, but he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, another saw him and said, You are one of them too. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man also is with him, for he is a Galilean too. There was something about their accent that stood out. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. Again, and other Gospels say that he literally starts calling down curses on himself. I mean, probably something effect of, I'll be darned. God can send me to hell if I'm lying right now. I don't know the guy. Immediately while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. Verse 61. The Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord. He had told him before rooster crows today, you will deny me three times, and he went out and wept bitterly. He tried to cover it up with his pride and his own efforts. It never works. You'll end up crumbling in fear, and that's what happened to him. Okay? Um, you know, Calvin about this passage said what he should have done after this one who just ran and hid. He shouldn't have even tried to follow Jesus. Just gone and hid and prayed. Right? Watch and pray that you don't fall into temptation. Here's kind of a side note I want to mention. It's a great quote by G. Campbell Morgan. He said, The look of Jesus would have been wasted if Peter wouldn't have been looking at Jesus. So once again, when we do sin, which we inevitably will, although we should fight it as though our life depended on it, don't stay in your sin and shame for a second. Look instantly back to Christ. It'll bring brokenness. Appropriate kind of brokenness, but it also brings healing. Now, fourth point. Four points, yep, four points today, okay? Mixing it up. We've got plenty of time, don't worry. Flip over to Galatians chapter 2. Because again, part of why I wanted to do this with Peter is you see a pattern here that goes throughout his life, right? We all have a besetting sin. And there can be at times a mindset that says, yeah, but all that was before the cross, it was before the resurrection. 
The game that we're playing, the fight that we're fighting is really different now. Yes and no. Yes and no. Is there more power and resources available to us? Yes. But let's just be honest. Do we seem like we're that much better at accessing? I don't know about you. I oftentimes don't. And we're in good company because Peter wasn't always either. So here's the fourth point. The gospel's not good enough. Okay. Now before I read this passage, let me give a brief little bit of context. Acts chapter 10. And remember, for the, for the first 15 or so years... Peter was the A, number one, undisputed leader of the entire church on planet Earth. Not the Pope, okay? But he was the lead disciple, the lead preacher. He's the head guy. He was the first one in Acts chapter 10 that God sent to go down to the Gentiles and preach the gospel to them and to see them come to Christ. you remember that? And then in Acts chapter 11 it says, some of the brethren, some of the Jewish brethren, the circumcised brothers, they heard about this and they took issue with him. I think that's how it says it in the ESV. And they brought him back, and they kind of wanted to interrogate him. So he wasn't a pope, okay? But he was certainly the leader, the most influential. Hey, we don't like it. You went out and preached to the Gentiles. You had meals with them. And he says, yeah, let me tell you what happened. And by the end, they say, okay, well, we believe you. But remember, God even had to give Peter a vision in Acts 10 saying, don't call any food unclean. Don't call people unclean. I'm no respecter of persons. But so Peter got it. Peter experienced it. Peter was preaching and teaching it to others. But then he gets to Antioch. Now, Antioch was a church where there were a lot of Gentile believers. Paul and Barnabas actually happened to be at the church same time Peter was. Now, Old Testament ceremonial food laws did say there were certain things that a devout Jew could eat and not eat, right? We're all familiar with that. But there have been man-made additions, probably by the Pharisees, that went as far as to say, don't even eat with a Gentile. Now, that was never in the Old Testament. Never said you couldn't eat with them. But that was like their extra thing, right? It's like people today that say, yeah, the Bible says don't get drunk. And so I say, never touch a drop of alcohol. Maybe that's a good application for you. It's not in the Bible, though. You can't make it a universal rule. But the Pharisees had essentially made it a man-made tradition. You never eat with a Gentile. You understand? But here's Peter. He's getting it, man. He's leading, preaching grace. Gentiles, Jews, we're all one. He's down to the church. Look at what happens. Galatians chapter 2, verse 12. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, so a group of men comes down from the church at Jerusalem, where now James, the brother of Jesus, is the head church of this mega church. And again, a lot of the believers there, most of them were still Jewish, and they still had all this Jewish psychology. So they probably tended a little times to be a little too strict, a little too legalistic, right? He used to eat with the Gentiles. So Peter used to be great eating with Gentile believers all the time. Potluck supper, Wednesday night, Peter's there with all the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw. And, and the word there is kind of like this slow military retreat. Probably didn't all happen at once. Just slowly but surely, he started scooting down the table, sitting at a different table, not spending as much time with them. But it's evident what's going on. And to hold himself aloof. Right? There's the pride. I don't, I don't really interact with Gentile believers that much. Glad they're in the kingdom, but, you know, they're kind of second class. They're not like us Jewish believers. <clears throat> Why? What was underneath that pride and that arrogance? Fearing the party of the circumcision. Right? 
I don't want these guys to go back to mega church in Jerusalem and tell everybody how much I'm hanging out with Gentiles. You know, I'm known as the apostle to the Jews. I don't want my reputation tarnished. I don't want them criticizing me again. I don't want to get back and have to go to the Grand Inquisition again. He's not resting fully in the finished work of Christ and the gospel. He's trying to add to it some of his own fig leaf righteousness of, look at what a great Jewish Christian I am. Right? Look at my reputation, and I don't want it tarnished. Verse 13, the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Total side note, but it's important when guys sin splatters. One of the lies I think Satan tells us too is your sin is just personal. It's not really going to hurt anybody else. Never works out that way, does it? Even the sin alone in the dark will have implications for other people. Verse 14, But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? He rebukes him publicly. Now, Peter repents later in Peter's last letter that he writes. He, he speaks kindly and warmly of Paul, so he responds well. Okay? But notice how Paul rebukes him. He doesn't say, hey man, you're not being nice. You're not being kind. You're not being friendly. You're not uh, doing the unity thing in the church. You're kind of acting like a racist. You're, trying to, you're kind of being superior. He, he could have said any of those things, but he doesn't get it. He says, listen, you're not living like the gospel's true. You're acting like you need something other than the gospel to make you significant, to make you safe, to make you right, to make you have your reputation. Now, listen to Martin Luther. Peter knew the article of justification better than we do, and yet how easily he gave great occasion of offense. I'm going to read a quote by Lovelace that I read part of this a couple of weeks ago, but I'm going to read it in its fullness today, and I think it applies so well here. Listen to this. Men who are not secure, and women who are not secure in Christ cast about for spiritual life preservers with which to support their confidence. And in their frantic search, they not only cling to the shreds of their ability and righteousness they find in themselves, but they fix upon race, their membership in a party, their familiar social and ecclesiastical patterns, and their culture as a means of self-recommendation. The culture is put on as though it were armor against self-doubt, but it becomes a mental straitjacket which cleaves to the flesh and can never be removed except through comprehensive faith in the saving work of Christ. You hear what he's saying there? It's not just that we boast in kind of our personal ability and righteousness. Sometimes we start to boast in whatever about our culture, about our church, about our nation, about our political party that kind of gives us a little bit moral standing that makes us feel good about ourselves. And it's deadly. It's anti-gospel. It's a false gospel. Now, practical application. Okay, flip over to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5. And let's look at how Peter exhorts us later in life how to deal with this. 1 Peter chapter 5. And let me just kind of set the stage for us here. There's, there's really two problems that Peter is addressing at the same time. He's, he's talking to older men who are elders who weren't being good shepherds for... One of three different reasons. Either they weren't really motivated, they were kind of lazy, kind of had a bad attitude about it. Or they were motivated, but they were motivated for the wrong reason. They wanted some kind of selfish gain, whether that was money or their own reputation. Or third, they were being too harsh. They were lording it over people. 
But there were also some younger men in the church that weren't being submissive, kind of had an attitude problem, maybe a little rebellious, a little arrogant. Now look at how Peter is going to exhort them to deal with these sins in light of everything we've just said. 1 Peter 5, let's start in verse 1. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder. Look at that humility. He doesn't say, I'm an apostle. Oh, by the way, I'm the chief apostle. He just says, I'm just a fellow elder. And witnesses of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Listen to this quote by Keller. We must have multiple exposures both to our need for God's grace, which usually comes through experiences of disappointment and failure into the gospel message, to get God's love and Christ's grace down deep into the motivational principles of our hearts to the foundational layer of our identities. It's a process, and it's often a slow one. I hope the way that you and I will walk away from this today, guys, is, listen... We just looked at four examples of Peter blowing it. I mean, one of the greatest Christians to live of all time. And think about this. Some of the times when he blew it, he was literally looking straight at Jesus, right? I mean, the first time when he trembled in fear, he just experienced this wonderful miracle that most of us have never seen anything like that in our lives. The second time when he started to sink, he was literally looking at Jesus. But it wasn't enough. The third time when he failed, he literally, Jesus was sitting there talking to him. Audibly, he could hear him. And yet he kept failing. And even after the cross, after the resurrection, after visions, all that, he kept failing. So, be gentle with yourself. Be gentle. We're going to stumble and fall. And yet, this is not a lesson about failure, right? This is not a lesson just, well, we're all going to be failures. No, there's hope. There's progress. By the end of his life, Peter is maturing, and he's able to turn, he's able to exhort others from the lessons that he had learned. Okay? So the first lesson, let me look at this in verse 4. Okay? He's saying, listen, the chief shepherd is going to come, and he's going to give you a crown. Don't doubt the goodness of God. Don't doubt the bounty of God, the richness of God, the generosity of God. Don't, you elders, don't be trying to boast in your reputation. You don't need it. You got Christ, you got glory, you got a crown coming. He's going to give you everything you need. You don't have to go out there and lust after something else. Look at what he says to the young men in verses 5 and 6. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility. Right? The old and the young. Toward one another. For God has opposed the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. You don't have to try to exalt yourself. He will exalt you in the right time and the right way. Don't try to boast in your own abilities. Look at verse 7. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Peter realizes. Listen, we said doubt and fear are really similar. What's another word that we could put in there with those two words? Worry. Anxiety, right? And Peter says, I know you're going to struggle with these temptations to fear, to doubt, to worry. And when you do, the best thing is just in prayer, give them to God. Here's my fears, God. Here's my doubts. Here's my worries. Here's my anxiety. I can't handle them, but will you handle them? Get your eyes off yourself. Get your eyes on the Christ. Don't live by fear. Live by faith. And look at that little last phrase at the end of verse 7. 
because he cares for you. Guys, I'm telling you, and Peter understood this too, the deepest, most effective lie Satan has ever told is God doesn't really care for you. He doesn't really love you. He's not really going to give you the best stuff in life. And when that lie gets into our bloodstream, we will do all sorts of craziness out of fear, out of doubt, out of pride, trying to fix the situation. (coughs) But when we feel like, no, 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 God in heaven is my Father. He loves me. He cares for me. There's freedom. There's power. A couple more verses, we're done. Verse 8. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him. Firm in your faith. Knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. I don't know if you ever struggle with this, but I know I do. I think if I have like one really good time in Bible study, or maybe one really good morning where I wake up super early and I have extra long time in prayer, or maybe a great worship service that's just like so inspirational, or I get a new accountability plan, right, or something, I'm like, the battle is won. And, and I don't say this out loud, but kind of what I think subconsciously sometimes is, it's going to be easy. The next time I'm tempted with the same sin, it's going to kind of be easy and natural for me to just say, I'm not interested in that. It's not true, guys. It's a war. It will feel like a fight to the death until the day we see Jesus face to face because we have this real enemy prowling after us. So we need to do all that stuff, pray, worship, sing, read the Bible, get an accountability plan, all that. But then I say, I still got to fight all day long. Taking every lie captive, preaching truth to myself. Last verse. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Listen, He is the Savior who justified me. He is the Savior who is sanctifying me. He is the Savior who will glorify me. He'll establish me. I don't have to establish myself, my own righteousness. I don't need to live by fear. I need to live by faith. I don't need to live in pride nor in anxiety, but trust and dependence. Think about, very briefly when we're done, how Christ counteracts all the lies of the devil. Christ gave up the experience of the goodness of the Father that He had in heaven perfectly so that we could have it too. Christ had the good life, the perfect life, a life of bliss. He gave it up so that we could have it one day in heaven with Him too. Christ gave up His covering, His protection to suffer the wrath of God so that we can have that covering and protection in Him and never have to suffer for our sins. Let that truth burn and shine on a regular basis so that when you feel those little doubts, those little fears, those little worries coming, say, I'm not giving in to that. And I'm not going to try to counteract it in my own pride. I counteract it with faith in a risen Savior. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, please help these truths sink down deeper into the basement of our hearts and change our functional theology so that we obey you more out of joy. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If you have any questions for Olin, please email him at olin.stubbs at campusoutreach.org.